Welcome to the Fundraising Leadership Podcast, where we engage in lively and thoughtful conversations with professionals in the nonprofit world. And in this case, we're branching out. <laughs> I am Margaret katz Can, and I'm here today with my teammate and friend, Janice Cunning. And we have a super fun guest here today, and I'm going to introduce him in a moment. But first... I think just wanted to let our listeners know that we're we're mixing it up this year in 2023, aren't we, Janice? We are. We like to mix it up every year. Keep yeah. things fresh. That's right. So this year, our team really decided to focus on humanity and bringing the human back to humanity in our work and our messaging. And in service of that, we thought that we would focus on personal growth as a podcast topic. And we wanted to find people who had taken a deep personal dive into something. And so this week, we have an author on the show, and I'm super happy to introduce you to Mike Rucker. And Mike, as he describes himself in no particular order, author, father, husband, organizational psychologist and behavioral scientist, recovering entrepreneur, fitness enthusiast with mechanical parts, VW bus aficionado, seeker, traveler, future astronaut. And I'm going to add, which is an awesome introduction and fun, because he is also the author of The Fun Habit. Welcome, Mike. We're happy to have you. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Yes, this is one of my favorite topics. So <laughs> I was super excited to read Mike's book. It's it's amazing. We're going to link to it in the show notes, and we're really going to encourage everyone. And I think when when you were talking, Margaret, it came to me like, yeah, we're just, I mean, Mike, I'm sure you're seeing this uh, with everyone that you talk to as you're on your book tour, but, you know, the nonprofit sector is really questioning itself, you know, and, and trying to figure out where it's going to go next. And, you know, a lot of people that I know are um, taking time off, leaving the sector, reevaluating. And so it feels like what is more important right now than really bringing fun back? Because, you know, that's energy. and um, Mike, we were really struck by how you start the book by providing the context of like when you were actually working on the final draft and what was going on for you personally and the sort of irony in some ways of that. So can you tell us a little bit about the context of working on the book? Yeah, so the underpinnings of the book happened through tragedy, but that's not what you're referencing. So in 2016, I lost my younger brother, which is important in the context of sort of what made me want to write the book, um, sort of processing, you know, that trauma. Um, and then, you know, really finding joy and delight after that. But right when I sold the proposal to Simon and Schuster, um, the world essentially closed down. And um, on top of that, I was at a medical conference in March 2020 in Orlando, and ended up getting a fairly mild um, infection from COVID. I was one of the early folks. And then Unfortunately, at the end of May, it came back to haunt me. I, I thought I was fine um, and then ended up uh, you know, having long hauler um, issues for about six to seven months to the extent that I didn't know if I was going to get through that. You know, here is this amazing opportunity. And then, you know, like life does, <laughs> you know, threw a curveball at my face. Um, so I slowly but surely, uh, you know, during that time, I had uh, the, the worst part of, you know, everyone suffers through long haul or different that, you know, unfortunately gets that condition. For me, it was insomnia. 
insomnia like I'd never had before. I certainly had like mild anxiety during my doctoral work, you know, where you would work up till three and you had so much caffeine, you know, that you would have um, problems sleeping. And so I didn't know what true insomnia was. Um, whatever it did to my brain chemistry, I was able to get like 90 minutes of sleep a night. And, you know, after about three weeks of that certainly leads to, you know, clinical outcomes, which I, which I had to deal with. And so I didn't know up from down, but I knew that, you know, being able to enjoy things was probably out there. And so that kind of helped me, me go. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the context of that is that, you know, again, sometimes we have these amazing opportunities, but we got to put them on pause because, you know, (laughs) life has other plans for us, right? There's, there's something really important, I think, in the relationship between fun and um, disruption in your life. Can you maybe just share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, fun is a tool that's almost accessible at any point. And that's what I found it as an interesting construct, right? No matter what's happening to us. And it's not necessarily from the vantage point of a Pollyanna attitude, but it is that even when we were processing, you know, immense change, you know, perhaps trauma um, or going through any other difficult situation, if we reclaim the agency and autonomy that we have, we can bias our activities and and the way we spend our time, likely in ways that are more enjoyable than just letting time pass us by. And using that as a construct of, okay, so here are all the things that are sort of happening to me or I have to do. What are those things, you know, because you do need, there's some things that you're always going to need to do, but then where do I have control over outside of that and then to what degree can i orchestrate a life you know within the within the confines of what i'm responsible for and and really start to enjoy things more um because you kind of alluded to it earlier janice i think so many of us that are operating through this lens of duty or uh you know whether you call it passion or commitment or whatever it is that's an that's important. I don't villainize that at all. I mean, this book isn't about living a whimsical life, right? It's w- suggesting that so many of us are not taking at least some time off the table for renewal, that we're burning out and we're not able to do that stuff. And so there are two things that are happening there, right? One is we're not showing up as the best version of ourselves. Here we are wanting to live a dutiful life, wanting to make an impact, you know, potentially wanting to be a change maker. And we don't have the vigor and vitality to do that because we're burning it at both ends. The other is if we could still do that stuff and then also live a joyful life, why not? And so, I mean, it's kind of there. And for whatever reason, especially here in the US, we're the last to get the message. I mean, you're seeing countries all across the EU kind of get it, right? You know, like, even nonprofits, academia, and certainly in business, you know, companies that are shutting down the email server on Friday to kind of send that social normative message that go recharge your batteries on Saturday and Sunday because we want you to show up Monday, you know, able to have the capacity to do the hard stuff. And for whatever reason here, you know, call it the Puritan work ethic, call, call it whatever you want. We just think, you know, oh, okay, dinner's over. Let's answer emails till our head hits the pillow. And we don't understand that that means we wake up in the morning not really wanting to, you know, tackle the big challenges because we have no energy left. Yeah, it's sort of um, 
I love that you make a case for fun. Like your book is really research-based and rigorous, and then it's also really practical. Um, and I was, I was reading, I was, I mean, I, you don't have to make a case to me, Mike, like I'm, <laughs> I fully bought in, but I love that when, that is there, yeah. right? Because I think there is, especially in the work culture, you know, which is the context of this podcast is people are thinking about their work and, you know, before we kind of hit record, like you alluded to it, like a lot of people who work in fundraising or nonprofits, like they're, they're dealing with like the world's biggest problems, right? Like people who don't have housing, people who don't have food, you know, people who are ill, like there's, there, it, it's easy to sort of have um, a heaviness around that. And one story I loved, I was, I was saying to Margaret, I loved you talking about Judy, your dental hygienist. Because, you know, that's a job that doesn't necessarily always feel like it might be the most fun. But tell us about Judy, because I think that's a great story for people to think about. Whatever you do for work, you can make it more fun. Yeah, and I love Judy. She just retired, but uh, and she's such an interesting character, because I think you have to be, right? You know, and we're about to get into it, so don't worry. I'm, I'll reveal what's so special about Judy. Um but her story just got picked up by Time Magazine, so it was so neat. I got to text her like, "Hey, you're in, you're in time," because she's so, uh, um, yeah, she, you know, she comes from this level of service where she hasn't asked for any of that, so it was neat to tell her. But so about Judy, essentially, she went through again what we were talking about. She had, you know, um, a fairly traumatic experience, if you believe the psychological literature. I think divorce is. Um, in some contexts can be more disruptive than death, right? And so she was going through a, a fairly challenging divorce and um, she had been a homemaker and so she needed to find a new job. And uh, uh, But she had two kids and so she looked to dentistry because um, dentistry has fairly reasonable hours, right? And it was something where she felt she could contribute and, and be of service to people. What she didn't anticipate once she got into that vocation was um, because she was, you know, a fairly optimistic person that a lot of people view that hour in the dentist chair as the worst part of their week, right? So here is this like really optimistic, joyful person who essentially realized that she had gotten into a vocation where everyone didn't look forward to seeing her. And so there was some serendipity in, in her story. Uh, someone who had a, a uh, you know, kind of positive slant, like her had gifted her a crazy costume one time. And so Judy decided to wear it during one of her cleanings. And she noticed that that person didn't have, you know, that that feeling of like, uh, she just kind of fixated on Judy's costume and the, they really had a good time and everything was really playful. So she did it again, got the same experience with the next patient and again and again, and she's like, wow, this is a way to really liven it up. And so um, she continued with that practice day after day. She would, you know, create a new costume and people would come, myself included. I was one of her patients, would actually look forward to getting their teeth cleaned. And I just think it's so proud, you know, profound with regards to, you know, you know, a nice metaphor for the whole message in the book. I mean, everyone, including, you know, the dentist in there didn't know what she was doing still to the, you know, until she retired was like, eh, I don't really get it. But all of her patients were like, no, this is so amazing because, you know, now I actually want to go to the dentist so much so that, 
some people, because they were now in a lighthearted mood, wouldn't need nitrous. So she actually reduced the amount of medicine people needed to take. That's how impactful just having a play fun, you know, playful fun attitude at work had. And so that that's just one micro example of you know how this can be applied across a whole spectrum of different things. Yeah. There's something as you're talking about fun and you write about this in the book that it's different from happy. It's different from this constant quest for happy. And I think you shared that you, um, you changed your thinking about that around the death of your brother, but maybe you can share with us a little bit about how how are they different and why is one more important? Well, I think what I found um, again, I used to be, you know, big zealot of happiness research, at least, and I still am. I think a lot of the tools of positive psychology in context are really helpful, right? I still um, love gratitude, and I've still certainly loved mindfulness. I think what happened is um, they kind of got overprescribed. So when the motivation doesn't hit, you know, there's this dissonance, what we call toxic positivity that can be really problematic. But to answer your question, Happiness, especially in the sense of psychology, has been boiled down to what we call subjective well-being, right? I mean, we measure it by numbers. And so that already becomes problematic, right? One, because it's an act of evaluation, you're now out of the moment. So it really requires you to sort of ruminate on, okay, how do I feel instead of actually engaging in life? And then two, once you boil it down to, you know, essentially a scale, you're going to hit you know, once you get to a 10, where do you go from there? Right. And so they're always, you know, once you fixate on that, you're always kind of now either at your peak or not happy. And especially if you're in a period of your life where it's appropriate to unpack, you know, what challenging experience you're having. So for my brother, creating the psychological space to mourn and where unhappiness is an appropriate response, you know, to that unfortunate event, fixating on happiness, you know, this whole, you know, meme culture of good vibes only becomes, again, really problematic, because all of a sudden, it can start to uh, seep into your identity, like, oh, oh, my goodness, you know, these curated lives of folks on Instagram, they're always good. And now I'm here, you know, what does that mean? Oh, it must mean I'm an unhappy person. And so the discreet answer is, it, it really is this act of evaluation, where, kind of falling back on my research on workplace wellness and and social determination theory, when we have autonomy, when we really feel like we have control over our domain, that's when we thrive because it doesn't matter anymore. We realize that, you know, again, our emotional state can be a certain way, but we can really steer our ship in a way that, that does connect us to things so that we feel good about them. So that, you know, we're enjoying what we're doing, even if we're tackling a heady problem, like a lot of your listeners are. Yeah, I think I loved, I love the, you know, when you talked about like fun is biased towards action, you know, it's like, it's something we do, you know, and you can be doing that in, in any context, you know, you don't have to dismiss like the complexity of the different emotional situations that you're dealing with in your life to have fun. Yeah. And then the, you don't need to rectify them either. Right. You're mm-hmm. essentially, you know, and so I think in, in the world of change makers and, and folks that are trying to make an impact, a, a, another thing I would suggest is you need things that are invigorating. Right. I mean, what I studied is folks, you know, folks that in earnest are really trying to do the difficult work. If it starts to skew towards martyrdom, 
all of a sudden they're not even taking care of themselves, right? They're like, oh, you know, I need to do this for the cause. You do that long enough and it's clear that a majority of folks ultimately won't have anything left in the tank and then you won't be able to, you know, contribute anyways. And so figuring out ways, again, there's sort of three constructs, right? The environment that you're doing it in, the people that you're with or the way that you're doing it. If any of those is really, really grinding you down and, you know, quote unquote, not fun, what are ways to potentially improve that particular, you know, construct of how you're you're going about your work so that you are at least enjoying some parts of it? Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I, I think it'd be great to get into the idea of autonomy, because I think what I liked in your book was you you pointed out that sometimes when we think about fun at work, it's like, let's have a social you know, committee and impose ideas of fun on people, which like most people don't think are fun. So talk about that. Like, it, it is a very customized, personalized, autonomous approach that you're taking to fun at work. Yeah. And, you know, the reception has been mixed because a lot of people are like, you're the fun guy. You got to, you know, tell us, you know, especially leadership, like, how do we have fun? Well, First, to your point, I mean, it does become complex, especially the more people that are involved. And so you need to start by creating psychological safety, which is a heady task. You know, a lot of people are like, uh, you know, so but so that's why I, I took the individual approach, because it really does start with the individual, right? Like understanding how can you create space so that autonomy can thrive? And so does that mean figuring out what are the enjoyable ways you can go about your work? What are the ways to create space within your work so that you can take a break that is enjoyable, maybe if the work is challenging, right? Like, so part of my academic work was trying to treat physician burnout. And I would go into that space and find out that these folks are dealing with patients, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week. So how do we create that for them, right? And so we'd be in these meetings and I'd say, well, first, we need to reduce their workload and that would be an uh, uh, you know a, a, a stop right and so i think figuring out how to create space so that people really can enjoy their time becomes an imp an important first step especially you know within this work culture that we have here in the us and so then once you have that once you feel like you are able to control the way that you deliver your work as long as it's in line with what you need to achieve. So I talk about that in the chapter two, making sure like, okay, what is expected of me? Because in this new realm of knowledge work, the goalposts can move if we're not explicit about what is needed, right? And But once you know that, then you know what the playground looks like, right? And then you can start to incorporate fun and playful elements in the way that you go about your work. Yeah, what would you say to people who don't identify as particularly playful, you know, who maybe identify more as serious or, <laughs> you know, and I know there's a big split between introversion and extroversion sometimes too. But. No, but I think that that goes to what Janice was saying. Like yeah. a, lo a lot of people, the way they're going to find fun is, you know, being calm, being serene. In the book, I bring up the work of Jeannie Sai out of Stanford. And another really problematic thing, especially here in the West, is that the way we advertise fun are like, you know, folks all hand in hand, you know, jumping and clicking their heels on the beach, right? Fun for a lot of people is enjoying their lunch hour and reading a good book so they can go back the second half of the day and be the best version of themselves instead of, you know, again, 
you know, if there are any leaders listening, you know, being forced into lunch, which is essentially going to be an extension of work. And so now you've had a nine hour workday instead of two, four hour segments. And again, all this might seem pretty pedestrian, but when you look, you know, at an immense amount of research, one, people start to hate their job, right? Which is awful. And then two, they're far less productive because they essentially have now worked way too long. And so whether you call it fun or call it renewal, these things become extremely important um, just so that we can enjoy the time that we do have. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it, exactly that. Like it's, and I think sometimes we, I know for me, like I love reading, you know, and um, I was, um, I was reading something else that I won't name. <laughs> Recently, <laughs> and they have this list of like, these are the activities ranked of like, what is the most fun for people? And reading was very low in the list. And I'm like, well, I don't care because for me, it's super fun, right? And I'm in a book club and I listen to a book podcast. And like, I even find it fun to like go on the library and like manage my library holds. I find it fun to go to the library and like pick up a book or return a book. Like, you know, that's it's just like, that's who I am. And so I think that, yeah, like sometimes we, we see these kind of like, well, most people think this is fun, like going to a bar and drinking. I'm like, well, that's not fun for me. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I think that's what, um, well, speaking of that, I, you know, it was like four or six weeks ago, but the uh, a French gentleman just won, you know, a, a landmark case in France because essentially his, you know, the company culture said that that was what was fun. And he kept saying he didn't want to go. And so they eventually fired him because they said, you know, you're not a good fit for this company. And um, he won because that's not that's forced fun. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it really is problematic. So, yeah, I think you just need to be careful there. And especially in my work, you know, it's challenging because people wanted me to have this really discreet definition of fun. And I made sure that it was a big tent because that's what the science suggests. I meant pleasurable experiences are so unique to the individual to say they need to be, you know, three things or, you know, whatever to have those kind of constraints would be, um, wouldn't be in line with the way that I see, um, you know, things fitting in again, it's also for me, funny that we try to like jam, like let's jam fun in as opposed to taking anything else out. Like you were talking about the physicians, like we're not going to work that <laughs> just going to add more pressure of like you know. yeah that's right like <laughs> you know again that's how you start is essentially making space because making fun just another item on your to-do list you know is is yeah that's a mess and so the way i look at fun you know i kind of alluded to it before um and again in line with you know the way we look at happiness is fun's a lot more about finding fit right like that connection you know whether that is with friends whether that is you know, really engaging with new material and learning things, whether that's folks that love to be out in nature, you know, whether it's a spiritual practice, anything that where you're really feeling good and it's and it's pleasurable for you, you know, that to me classifies as fun, right? For me, it I, I fit the standard mold. Like I, you know, like to be at a loud concert and kind of jumping around with other people. For my wife, it's curling up with, you know, historical nonfiction at the pool. And that's great. You know, she has a big smile on her face when she's doing that and comes back, you know, to the real world way more refreshed than if I had dragged her out to a cocktail party or whatever it is. So I, I feel like that's important. Where so many other things are, to your point, where do they rank? You know, oh, book ranks at the bottom. What, the, you know, not to use any expletives, what does it even mean? You know, I mean, I'm glad you gave me, you know, what you feel is fun. 
you know, thanks for nothing, really, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to aspire in my life to to be able to say the words like, no part of that was fun. Like, <laughs> this is not a repeater for me, you know, really yeah. just to get super clear, both on what is fun, but also like, that was not fun. And that's all. what becomes important, right? Like, it, again, it's part of the process in the book. If you're not mindful of those things, they tend to habituate. You know, I'm surprised, you know, Social media use and channel surfing and what folks are now calling doom scrolling, you know, I, I was certainly a victim of that during COVID, you know, just watching the same news over and over again, you know, provided no value, but it certainly made me, um, you know, have poor mental hygiene. But the uh, one of the things that I found is uh, friendships out of convenience, like folks that just sort of, you know, have this coffee date with someone they don't really enjoy just because that's, you know, it's become routine. And so there's a lot of things I think once you become mindful and like, wow, this is just, you know, either toxic or, you know, not a good use of my time because it's not leading to either person's benefit, you know, being mindful that, you know, obviously being considerate and kind, but figuring out, you know, I just don't want to waste time in this way anymore, then opens up the space for doing things that you really do enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at, we're going to wrap up shortly and, and you've been kind enough to share something with us that we can share with our listeners. Um, and, you know, we're going to ask you to kind of challenge, but I think if just before we do that, maybe you can introduce the play model, because I think that's an important part of this challenge and kind of just give us a high level overview of what that model looks like. Definitely. So um, in the book, there's something called the play model, which is a simple four quadrant model. Um, play stands for pleasing living, agonizing, and yielding. And it's essentially a way to get mindful of how you're spending your time. And so pleasing and living are things that we enjoy doing. Pleasing are things that are really easy to do um, <laughs> that we like. And then living are things that lead to more peak experiences. And so they're harder to do. We can't do them all the time. But in the book, I make a case that indexing more of those you know, allows us to have more opportunities to potentially create you know, rich memories that uh, lead to a lot more encoded information. I make a case for why that's important. Um, but what's more fun about this model is the yielding and agonizing categories, which both are things that are not fun to do, right? So yielding doesn't take a lot of energy and we don't really get any enjoyment of it, but oftentimes we can be tricked into thinking that it's enjoyable because it essentially pacifies discomfort, right? And so again, we alluded to what those are, things like, doom scrolling, spending too much time on social media, doing things that we've habituated that, you know, we don't really know why. It's just sort of how we pass time because we, we haven't been having any fun. So we don't, you know, we don't have any energy to do anything else. And then agonizing our things. Those are the things that generally, you know, we can't completely eliminate because, you know, if we're living a productive life, we need to do hard things. But oftentimes when we identify them as such, there are creative ways to potentially make them more enjoyable or potentially reduce them. Like something as simple as a habitual meeting you go to each week um, that you realize after looking at it, like I didn't need to be in that meeting for the last eight weeks. I can just not go to it because there's no reason for it. I hate that meeting. You know, so something as simple as that, but in the book, I give a whole host of different examples. Um, so I'd like to share with your listeners, there's a way to do that time audit. The play model is easily accessible online if you just Google search it. And I have a time auditing worksheet that's available at share.michaelrucker.com 
forward slash time dash audit. Um, it's just a Google sheet. Uh, you do need to have a Google account to be able to download it, but it allows you to sort all the things that you do. And then on another tab, it shows you a pie chart of how you're spending your time. So you can see like, wow, I'm not doing anything that I enjoy and hopefully become mindful of that and, and, and decide it's time for a change to potentially find some things that, um, you know, first to create some space, but then hopefully integrate some things that do light you up. Yeah. And nice. I think, you know, we work so much in the nonprofit space and there's so much burnout, you know, we're just really hearing there's so much burnout. They're having trouble filling empty positions. Uh, you know, this is for our community. This is maybe a great exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to share a story of an agonizing thing that I got rid of when I used awesome. to work at a consulting firm. Um, I was a prospect researcher, right? So it was my job to help identify uh, potential people to interview when we were trying to see if a campaign was possible. And we would have these big like one hour meetings with like, you know, the senior person on the team and the, like a few other people. And um, I was very busy. So an hour of my time, like we had a lot of these meetings. And finally, I went to my boss and I was like, you know, th there's only really like five minutes of this meeting that is applicable to me. So <laughs> could that be at the beginning? And then I could leave. So I could just I would come in and literally they would tell me what I needed to do. And then I was like, I could use that hour to be looking for these people. <laughs> you need me to find as opposed to sitting in this meeting listening to you talk about things so you know sometimes it's like, like that didn't didn't take away from anything the meeting still happened everybody got what they needed it was just like all that had to do was the agenda i was the first agenda item and then i was free to go you know and, so. and then what's great is once you set the stage for that you change the normative behavior like people realize like wait that's possible so in the book i talk about brad wills that kind of set the stage you know through leadership to be able to do that and then people start to make better choices right they're like wow okay this was a tremendous waste of time and sometimes <laughs> meetings will just get canceled right like hey we could have just done that with an agenda you know um that where we didn't have to come together but you know people just want that visibility of what people are doing whatever it is right i don't yeah. need to get off on a tangent but again each one of these things, there's generally a way to either improve the way it's done or potentially change it. And so I think, you know, again, it just takes us kind of getting out of our, you know, the rhythms of life and understanding like, wow, okay, I do have a little bit of control. And again, it's not about over-optimization. Like, you know, people are like, so how do I quantify fun? Like, oh my goodness, okay, so you haven't been listening <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go back and start reading from page one. Yeah. <laughs> Reread the book. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. Yes. But I do hear you saying part of this is really um, questioning when we have a narrative about how something has to be done. Yeah. And I think for anyone, you know, especially your listeners, uh, again, if if someone does invest in the book, you know, maybe start with chapter 11. Um, but it's this idea that even if you're coming from this sense of duty, like, you know, I just can't make that happen. I, the mental reframe of going, okay, well, if you do want to be a good steward uh, of whatever cause you're trying to, you know, provide service to, you are being a better steward of that opportunity by taking a little bit of time off the table for yourself because you show up as a better person. So you have, you know, again, more vitality and vigor to approach that problem, but you're also a nicer person generally. And we know through social contagion that 
if everyone is ground to a nub, then it becomes a toxic environment anyways. So allowing people to have space outside of the heady issue that you're trying to tackle, then, you know, when you get together, you actually enjoy that time too. So it can either be a downward spiral or an upward spiral. And I think most people, you know, if given the choice would, you know, choose the latter, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody who listens to our podcast is doing their part, you know, to make a better world. And so I'm just going to say, like, for everyone who's listening, you deserve to have fun while you're doing that. Agreed. Absolutely. And what a great, um, what a great, you know, topic (laughs) to open the year with some good, with some good challenge. So Mike Rucker, author of The Fun Habit, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh my goodness, thanks yes, for having me. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the show notes so everyone can see where to get the book. Is it is it out right now? It is out, yeah. It's out, okay. It's yep. out right now. <laughs> get your orders in. <laughs> Buy now. Don't even have to pre-order, so great. Yeah, so we're going to remind you that what we're... We're asking you to, uh, we'll put a link to the worksheet and you can evaluate your activities and then uh, see how they stack up to the play model and where you might want to make some changes. And uh, we're also going to offer a free resource this week, which is a worksheet to help people identify their core values, which is, I think, another component, you know, part of the way that you come to figure out what is fun for you is by actually knowing what it is that you value. So thanks so much, Mike, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. This was fun. Great. So this podcast is brought to you by Fundraising Leadership. We provide unique coaching and training programs to nonprofit leaders. Please subscribe if you haven't already. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're enjoying the show, you can help us continue to bring thoughtful content with a one-time contribution. This supports our show and keeps it ad-free. Contribute today using the link in the show notes and you'll receive access to one of our highly acclaimed online courses. So now go put it into practice. Curious.